Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Just give me a moment, a moment, a moment to finish things off. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I'm so pleased that you are joining us today as we continue our incredible series. We're learning day by day how to live with certainty because we're learning how to trust. Trust in the Almighty is what is going to set us free, my friends. So welcome. Today, Partners in Healing, this class has been sponsored, I should say generously sponsored, by my dear friends, our loyal shul members, Felix and Rita Zilnik. And the Torah we will study today is designed to serve, or dedicated to serve as an aliyah for the neshama of Felix's father, Pinchas, Ben Moshe Aaron, may his memory be a blessing. Today, Vav Kislev is his actual yard site. What could be more appropriate? So, with no further ado, we are continuing. We're continuing to scale the heights of betochen of trust in Hashem. We have learned the first two of the five absolutely requisite shall we call them principles, faith principles, trust principles. You can't build betochen without these ingredients. And today we are going to delve into the third principle. Ha'akdama hashlishis. The third principle by virtue of which we can Ezrat Hashem, learn to have proper trust in Hashem and develop a full-throated betochen. You want to be able to experience trust, the gifts, the blessings of betochen in their fullness? Well, you need to employ a mechanism called exclusivity. The word 
Yiyachid, can be translated as exclusive. In the Kihat edition, on page 73, he introduces this as exclusive trust, but for some reason chooses to translate the word to single out, maybe, six in one half, half a dozen in the other. The point is, this is singularly focused. Your betachen is singularly focused. In the arena in which a person is supposed to have betochen or place trust and reliance on God. Now, in the fourth chapter, the Shara Betochen is going to enumerate those areas. He's going to talk about where is one required to rely on Hashem and where is one required to take initiative, not to rely on anybody. In other words, there's a an area, a dimension of our relationship with that's uh, what's around us, or with God, or with existence and life. So there are areas that are dedicated and designated for betochen. And then there are areas that are not meant for betochen. What exactly that means, we're going to discover a little bit later on. But I want to give you a little metaphor before we start this whole thing, because a number of people messaged me and said, come on, like, like faith, I understand, has to be exclusive. You can't believe in many gods. But I can't rely on somebody that they'll follow through when they promised they would do something. I can't feel a sense of surety or security because I have a capable person who's in place, who's committed to follow through and ensure that fruition is reached. So that's why Rabbeinu Bechayev uses the words of Meshu And here's my lame metaphor. Suppose you're married. Baruch Hashem, I am. So if you're married, and hopefully you're happily married, your marriage necessarily requires exclusivity. That is to say, <laughs> if you're married, you should be dedicated to your spouse and your spouse alone. Now, my wife makes dinner. Is it considered to be unfaithful if somebody else would make dinner? The answer is no. That's not the bond of marriage. My wife doesn't have to make dinner. Maybe I have to make dinner. Maybe nobody makes dinner. Maybe we figure dinner out by ourselves. That's not the bond of marriage. That's not something you have to be married to somebody for. So, when it comes to dinner, exclusivity is not a requirement. And so it is with many other chores. My wife happens to take care of our books. I have no clue. <laughs> That's not my forte. Every marriage is different. In my parents' marriage, my father takes care of the books. And tell me, if there was a husband and wife, both of whom are not particularly good with numbers, would it be unfaithful if they would ask somebody else to take care of balancing the bank? 
and being aware of how much money we have or, or not. Like, what would be wrong with that? The answer is nothing. I'm lucky. I'm thankful. My wife takes care of certain things. If for whatever reason she wasn't prepared to or couldn't, we'd have to find another way. But we all understand that there are certain things that are unique to a marriage. And I'm not just talking about physical intimacy. I confide in my wife. She confides in me. If you're married, I'm sure you confide in your spouse as well. Would it be appropriate for you to have another male or female confidant? So if a husband has another woman who he confides in, nice woman, she works in the office. They're co-workers. They get along really well. I don't think so, eh? Do you know that it is extremely common in North America? And by the way, it's a huge problem. The North American mind is wired to think that if I'm not sleeping with somebody, it's not called inappropriate. But that's not true. Displays of affection, any kind of physical touch that's reflective of an affectionate relationship should be anathema, beyond the pale. But it goes further. Your spouse should be your best friend. Your spouse should be the person you confide in. Your spouse should be the person you consult with. If your spouse is not that person and you have another woman in your life or another man in your life who does that for you, we got a problem. Houston, we have a problem. Why? Because that's unique for marriage. That, that's unique for the special bond, the special relationship you share together. As husband and wife, it's not my life and your life. For husband and wife, it's supposed to be our life. And our life is not supposed to be shared with anybody else. And when I need comfort, and when I need support, and when I need to be in any way undergirded or, or, or backed up, it's natural for me to look to my wife. It's natural for my wife to look to me. It's natural. It's appropriate. But it's not necessarily any longer expected. I recently read about a phenomenon that's called work spouses, where people are deeply invested with a stranger, somebody they know from their vocation or profession. And they think to themselves that as long as it doesn't get physical, I haven't really done anything wrong. But it's hardly inappropriate. My friends, that's exactly what Rabbeinu Bechaya speaks of when he addresses trust issues. If you are placing your trust, your reliance elsewhere, you have a trust issue. Because trust in God is a sum-zero game. It's absolute. To be clear, the concept of betochen is what governs and defines the emotional relationship that we have with God. 
We're supposed to love God. It's a mitzvah in the Torah. We're supposed to revere or respect God. It's a mitzvah in the Torah. To be sure, there are other people we're supposed to love and other people we're supposed to revere. For me as a Jew, I live under the responsibility to love every single member of Am Yisrael even the ones I don't like. As a Jew, I have a responsibility to revere and respect my parents. And to some degree, to respect everybody. And yet, within the milieu of what we call love, there's a special place in my heart for God, where there should be. There's a special place in your heart that's supposed to be reserved for the awe for the reverence, for the respect you afford to the Creator, and by extension, to the Creator's handiwork, to all who are created in His image, and to the world that He brings into existence. If you start to confuse the love you're supposed to feel for God with the love you feel for another human being, be it spouse, parent, sibling, child, or grandchild, we have an issue. We have a problem. Sometimes people have issues like this. They have conflicting loves. They meet a fantastic person. They fall in love. But Torah says that marriage is not appropriate. They have a problem. A challenge. An opportunity to demonstrate that their love for God is greater. When it comes to trust... We do not find this obligation, necessity, calling to place our trust in anyone other than God. To the best of my knowledge and understanding, there is nothing as important as betochen, as Rabbeinu Bechaya articulated right in the beginning, the p'ticha and the preface to the Shara betochen, and there's nothing as singular and exclusive. We place our trust in God and in God alone. Why is that so important? Because that's what defines our relationship. Like the confiding in somebody else. That your spouse would be deeply hurt and offended by. Let's continue now inside. I really think that what I've shared with you will serve as the backdrop, the foundation for what we're about to study together. Rabbeinu Bechaye is forceful and unequivocal. Al yeshatef zulato imo. Do not share your trust with anybody else. Don't create Big Ten trust. Diversity in bitochen is a big no-no. Ve'yiftach alov. How would diversity and trust appear? What would that big tent look like? Well, you trust on God, in God. And you also trust in some of His creation. I trust God and His creation. So what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Rabbeinu B'chayah says, If you do this, Ve'yiposeid bitchoinoi be'elekov. 
then you will necessarily ruin, spoil your trust in Hashem. When you are going to place trust in something or someone else, along with God, you necessarily are going to diminish your own trust in Hashem. In other words, diversity in trust equals a diminished monotheism. That's a bold statement. But I'm not making it on my own. The Marper Lenefesh in his commentary says this. Listen carefully, please. He says, I just want to see if we have any questions. Hi, Skippy. Says the Marpel Nefesh, You must choose to trust, to be placing your absolute reliance, your betochen, in God alone. Don't bring anybody else into the bedroom with you. This is you and God together. Don't have three partners in this intimate relationship. Don't have a love triangle with God. Loimar to say, because Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says, let me, Rabbi Nefer says, let me explain to you what Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar is saying. Trust doesn't mean, oh, I trust you. I know you won't hurt me. That's perfectly fine. When we speak about trust, like many words in English, it has a broad application. There are lots of people who trust me. People who trust me with some of the dark secrets in their life. People who trust me with some of their very, very personal issues and I do my best to try and help them. That's not unfaithful to God. If somebody speaks to a mentor, to a counselor, to a rabbi, it's not a lack of faith. Are there people who speak to God? Well, we all do three times a day when we pray. There's a whole group of Hasidim called Breslov Hasidim, and that's their thing. They go out into the wilderness and they speak to God. Does it work? Ask them. Maybe. I'm not an expert in Breslov Hasidim. But it's a respected movement within the milieu of Hasidim. So if somebody speaks to their spouse instead of speaking to God, would you say, uh-uh? Stop right now. Don't talk to your friend. Don't talk to your rabbi. Don't talk to your mentor. Don't talk to your counselor. Don't talk to your psychologist. Only talk to God. Uh, assuming you're a breast lover. And you talk to God on a regular basis. I don't think so. I can talk to God. That's fine. That's beautiful. I can talk to somebody. Talk to a good friend. And they can help me. When we talk about trust, we're not speaking about, I trust you. We're speaking about reliance. As you might remember in the first chapter of the Shara Betochen, Rabbeinu Bechaya spelled it out very, very clearly. He says, okay, so what does trust mean? What is trust? He says, what is trust? Very simply, Menuchas HaNefesh Perfectly tranquil, 
you're at ease, you're calm. You haven't a worry in the world because your heart relies on the one who provides for you. Who is that? That's God. Oh, God and, and my friend. God gives me Parnassa. My friend gives me some livelihood too. So I rely on God. I know God's going to give me my livelihood. I also know I have a good friend. He does really well in business. He promised me customers. So I rely on him. I'm calm today. I'm not agitated. I have no anxiety. I'm not nervous. I'm going into the office. If nobody calls, I call my friend. He's going to forward some of his customers. He will give me my livelihood. That is exactly what the Rebbeinu is talking about. That's an act of rebellion and sedition. You're putting your trust in another human being? Nah, it's not a person. I put my trust in a corporation. I sleep easy. I'm relaxed. Do you know why? Because I own stocks in Facebook. Facebook is invincible. Until it wasn't invincible a few weeks ago. But otherwise it's invincible. And I have enough money that I can buy anybody or anything. Because I have these stocks and these bonds, I know with certainty nothing can go wrong. That's not true. The only thing that is certain is Hashem Yisbarach. Don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting for one moment that you should go into the office worried, anxious, concerned, afraid. You should go into your office or your place of work or come home in perfect peace and tranquility with absolute certainty that all shall be good. Why? Because I trust God. Because I have betochen. If your complacency, tranquility, relaxation, your sense of well-being or security comes from anything other than God, says Rabbeinu Bahaya, you're in a love triangle and it's not a good thing. A trust triangle, okay. That's not appropriate for us. Our inner peace, our tranquility has to come from one and one source only. And that source is the Rebbeinu Shalalim, the master of the universe. You think that there is another force, there's something else that can actually save you? There's something else that can provide for you? Something that can harm you? If you think that, then you are in danger of forgetting God altogether. You're in danger of forgetting God. Because if you're trusting in God and the doctor, in God and the MRI, in the end, you'll place your trust in the surgeon. You'll place your trust in the oncologist and not in God at all. From the Marple and Nefesh's perspective, trust issues weaken your monotheism, your belief in God itself. Now, if that sounds intense, then take a look at what the Paslechem says. 
according to the Paslechem, this idea of placing our trust exclusively is so overridingly important. In fact, it's so critical that it doesn't mean I'm weakening my monotheism. But in the view of the Paslechem, the Beinu Bachaya believes it is an act of outright unfaithfulness. It's like idolatry. It's a very powerful statement. Betachen is a powerful thing. I'm going to go back to my metaphor. You see, I didn't sleep. I didn't sleep with anybody. I wasn't alone with anybody. I didn't touch anybody. Yeah, but for the last five years, you've been confiding in somebody else. I saw the emails. I saw the text messages. Your spouse is heartbroken, beside themselves. Incidentally, these aren't theoretical realities. More than once, I've had to try to counsel couples, try to help couples overcome their issues. Why? Because there was an intellectual and an emotional intimacy. In person, on chat rooms, in text message, WhatsApp message, Facebook messenger, in emails, all of these can be absolutely toxic. Our sages said, we're not permitted to be alone with a member of the opposite gender. It's called yichud. Aloneness is far more than a physical phenomenon, although that is the technical issue of halacha. Aloneness is when you create a sense of alone or exclusivity between you and a member of the opposite gender. And according to Torah, that can never happen in a healthy fashion unless you're married. I'm not talking about your parents, but your children, chas Now, the Chavis Halavavis, the Shara B'Tochen, is certainly not saying that we shouldn't enlist people to help us. We're going to get uh, into this in chapter 4. He's going to talk about you know, getting the help that you need in a normative fashion whenever you can and however you can. It's perfectly normal. As we'll talk about later on today, visiting the doctor if you're sick is a good idea. In fact, it's halakhically sound. Seeking out advice from an accountant so that you're able to balance your books, well, that's the normative thing to do. Going to see a headhunter when you need a job, it's a good idea. In fact, it would be religiously appropriate because it's a mitzvah to make a living. You have a skill set, find somebody who's able to locate a business or an arena in which your vocation or your ability can help you make a living. That's all fine. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about relying. Trusting means to rely on a provider. That is to say, you can make those efforts. You should make those efforts. Torah says you should make the efforts. Not because the efforts are the thing that is going to bring your blessings. 
but because Hashem brings your blessings through those mechanisms. As we learned just two episodes ago, in a stunning mimer, Hasidic discourse of the Alter Rebbe, God gives us miraculous deliverance all the time. He nourishes and sustains us in ways which are absolutely amazing. And yet, God doesn't want the miracles to be seen in an obvious fashion. So they're always going to assume the guise of nature. It's our job to engage in that. Want to call it a charade? You can. On some level it is. It's a big smokescreen, an obfuscation, a camouflage of God's miracles. We're supposed to do that. We're supposed to work really hard, not exhaust ourselves, but work really hard when we go to our business. We're supposed to focus, do things with acumen, intelligence, skill, to the best of our ability. Is that a guarantee that the deal goes through? Of course not. The deal goes through if Hashem wants it to go through, but Hashem wants you to make all of the efforts that are considered normative and reasonable. As one Israeli pilot, an observant, very pious observant fellow said to me, you train, you train, you train. You plan, you plan, you plan. You prepare, prepare, and prepare. He said, when everything is in place, you check two times, three times, everything is right. Then he says, you trust in Hashem. Because all the preparation and training in the world doesn't guarantee success. But it's the right thing to do. So we do these things mindful of the fact that Hashem provides, Hashem delivers. Hashem ordains and arranges. He runs the world. Our job is to make it look natural. So this is the business of trust, diversity, that Rabbeinu Bechaya believed was toxic. In the words of the Paslechem, Shalom Yedama Sheyeshchas V'Sholom Melehazolose So that you won't come to imagine that there is a God other than Hashem Yisbarach. And because there's another God, the Yiftach Gamalov. So then you believe in Him too. You worship many gods. A pantheon of gods. In other words, from the Patlechem's perspective, this is not just a question of weakening your monotheism. It's an issue of crossing into polytheism. Now you have made many gods. By placing trust in anything other than Hashem, it's a mild form of idolatry, which isn't mild at all. If you have trust, Gamalov, also on something else, also on God and also on something He created. Rabbeinu Bechaya has to substantiate this because these are very, very strong words. Let's be honest. Who amongst us hasn't been guilty of this? Who amongst us has been anxious or concerned and then 
found yourself reassured by one person or the other. The vast majority of people I know. And sometimes the person who looks back at me in the mirror, and I don't say this with any pride, with a great deal of shame, intuitively is relaxed, is tranquil, is certain because of the promises another person made, because of the guarantees that they are able to extrapolate from circumstances. That means forgetting about Hashem. That means trusting in something other than God. And it's something we have to avoid. Now, as we learned in the previous episode, this is not lip service. This is not cute to speak about or write about. You have to live this way. You have to actually feel calm, not because somebody else promised you or somebody else guaranteed success. Heavy stuff. Rabbeinu Bachaya now reaches across the ages to introduce you to a paradigm of precisely this. Vikvario Dato. And you may already well know. And here, Rabbeinu Bachaya is going to send us off to the book of Chronicles. Divrayom in Bez, Chronicles 2. In the 16th chapter, we hear of Asa, the king, the monarch of Judea, who suffered from a devastating illness. Let's talk about Asa a little bit. Only because, well, we should get acquainted. So, everybody knows about King David and King Solomon. They're pretty famous. But King Solomon had a son who was his successor. His name was Rechavim. Rechavim was a he was a complicated fellow, and he had real issues. And it was under his watch that the Jewish people tragically divided in two. He overtaxed and overburdened the people to the point that they rebelled. From that moment in history, from the reign of Rechavim onward, until the destruction of the second Beit HaMikdash, it was the kingdom of Judea, and there was the northern kingdom, or Malchus Yisrael. Well, to be sure, before Judea was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, Malchus Yisrael was destroyed by Sancherev. The book of Kings speaks about the kings, the kings of the south and the kings of the north, the kings of Yisrael and Yehuda. Rehovah met a son whose name was Aviah. To be sure, Avia was not a terrible fellow. He did take pains to ensure that the Beit HaMikdash was properly managed and there was no corruption. But sadly, he failed to eradicate foreign religious cults that had begun to mushroom in the land of Eretz Yisrael, specifically in the area of Yehuda. It was worse in the north. Rechavim's grandson, Asa, took affirmative action. In fact, he was considered to be an extremely pious individual. Not only did he strengthen Beit HaMikdash and its observance, 
but he went after those foreign idolatrous cults and he rid the land of Yehuda of idols. Asa was by every measure a very righteous person who vigorously played his role in an appropriate way. He fought against the idea of idolatry, at least in its graphic sense. Ridding the nation of idolatrous imagery and places of worship. Asa had some challenges on his hand during his very long, near, nearly four-decade reign, which included a, an attack with the Kushites, who may be Eritreans and Nubians, outmanned, outgunned. Asa had trust in Hashem betochen, and he experienced stunning, miraculous victories. However, later on in Asa's life, he fell short in the area of Betochen. In the 15th chapter of Divrei Ayomim, we read about Asa's mistakes. Mistakes in his military campaigns, relying on the king of Aram. Relying. Placing Betochen in the promises of foreign capitals and their armed forces relying on foreign aid, not Hashem. Didn't go well. It didn't go the way it had in the past. And in the 16th chapter of Divrei HaYomim, as we come to the end of Asa's life, we're introduced to a stunning turnaround in verse 7, we hear, Be'esahi, at that time, Ba Hanani Horoya, Hanani the seer. This is a prophet who's not mentioned anywhere else. We don't know what his prophets were, prophecies, with the exception of this message. He has no book, no messages for posterity. But he did come to Asa, Melech Yehuda, and he said to Asa, Vayoymer, because you relied, because of your reliance, he could have solicited his help going through the laws of nature. The problem was he relied. He had betochen. He relied on something, someone outside of Hashem. And the Navi criticizes him. He says, you leaned on him. You didn't lean on the Lord your God. Because of this, when you had your quarrel with the king of Yisrael, and you gave the treasures of the house of Hashem and of the king's house, and you didn't rely on Hashem, he says, because of this, this is the reason that the Kushites and the Libyans attacked you. Sorry. Um, 
where the Kushites, Nubians or, or um, Eritreans, and the Libyans who attacked you in the past with a vast force that was much, much greater, with chariots and horse people. And Hashem, because you had Betochen, delivered them into your hands. So the attack of those armies was far greater than this military threat, but you were able to defeat them, said the Navi, because you had Betochen. But now, you didn't have Betochen. Also is not happy. He does not take this criticism well. Asa flew into a rage. He got so angry at the prophet that he threw him into prison. This is pretty terrible. He threw him into some kind of cave or a dungeon. A cage. So what happened here? The Mepharshim say that up until this point, the prophets had always encouraged Asa. He didn't know how to take criticism very well. He had never actually faced such harsh critique. He lost himself. This is the case with many celebrities. They surround themselves with yes people. Everybody's afraid to say something they don't want to hear to the point that they start to make devastating mistakes because they're not, no longer capable of receiving any criticism. And that's what happened with Asa. Now, because Asa persecuted the prophet, people were not happy with Asa, as the Rabbi explains. And as a result, his attitude towards the people changed. Others maintain this may have something to do with 35 years of a successful reign and absolute power that finally started to get to him, unfortunately. But it began with his loss of betochen. So what happens? This brings us to where Rabbeinu Bechaya is going to share his words. Says Rabbeinu Bechaya, Mashanemer ba'asa in chasidusa, with all of his piety, and he was a pious king. Eis shesomach alareifen. My understanding of Rabbeinu Bechaya's words here are that this was a downward spiral. The story of Asa trusting in his doctors only shows up in verse 12. But the criticism of the prophet shows up in verse 7. His lack of trustworthy faithfulness in Hashem is apparent in the verses prior. He stopped trusting in Hashem properly. He relied on other forces or powers. He couldn't take the criticism and do tshuva. What happened in the end? Well, exactly what the Marpel and Nefesh said happened. He forgot about God. He relied elsewhere. It was no longer a trust triangle. The trust was placed inappropriately. It started with healing partners, but in the end, it became 
healing by medicine and doctors. God wasn't part of the equation anymore. They reached a time, a time when he relied, Samach, term smicha means to lean on. He relied on the doctors. The chesiv for it is written, and this is a quote from Chronicles 2, chapter 16, verse 12. And in his illness, he did not seek out Hashem. According to some of Hashem, he didn't pray. According to others, he didn't ask the prophet. Because had he asked the prophet, the prophet would have given him the guidance that he needed to fix the problem in the spiritual realm. In other words, the physical is merely a reflection of a deeper spiritual truth. And had he understood this, had he been mindful of it, had he lived in that sense, in that spirit, he would have been leaning on Hashem. He would have been praying to Hashem. He would have been seeking out the advice of Hashem's prophets so that they could tell him what to fix so that he could experience a healing and a recovery. But he didn't. Rabbeinu Bechaya says he was punished because of this. Now, as a, just a point of interest, so the verse says, in his 39th year of his reign, Asa contracted an ailment in his legs. That's what we're told. And this was a big problem. A big problem. It started in his legs. Ad moved up. But he did not seek out Hashem, but rather, Dorash He is exclusively focused on the doctors. So according to Marpil and Nefesh, <laughs> there you go, you see, he started having betochen issues. From betochen issues, he abandoned Hashem altogether. His monotheism itself was weakened. From Pat Lechem's perspective, that's an act of idolatry. He didn't even think that healing could come from Hashem. He forgot entirely that Hashem is the Rofei Chobasar. Instead, he focused only on the here and now, the apparent, the obvious and the tangible, what medicine, what doctors could do. That's literally, says the Paslechem, like idolatry. There's a beautiful teaching from the Baal Shem Tev on the words in the Shema, the Sartem, you turn, and you worship other gods, said the holy Baal Shem Tev, the moment a person turns away from Hashem, immediately, that in and of itself becomes an act of homage. It becomes an expression of loyalty and devotion to another force. That's idolatry. This is precisely the paradigm that Asa embodied. Now it seems that the Shara Betochen takes a very similar approach to the commentary of Gersonides, Rabbi Levi ben Gershon or Ralbag. In the Ralbag, who was a great Rishon, one of the several hundred years after Rabbi Bachaya, but in his commentary, it seems very much that what he says is in keeping with Rabbi Bachaya's understanding of these verses. He says, why was Asa angry? 
Because the prophet didn't honor him. Prophets speak truth to power. They don't dignify or glorify monarchy. They represent Hashem. At least when they're speaking words of Nevoah. Kras also he got angry. He put him in prison. Why? He was angry at him. He told him these harsh, sharp things. Couldn't take it. Rabag says, you know why he started mistreating the people? This was a domino effect. He got wind. He sensed that people were speaking defensively about the prophets. So what is what's going on here? How did the king do this? Is that the way you treat a prophet? So he became very angry at the people now. They said, King shouldn't behave this way. He crushed them out of his anger, out of his fury, because of the words of the prophet that in his estimation had diminished the honor of the monarchy. Says Rabag, he became very ill. Rabag says two things. Number one, mida connected mida, a measure for a measure. He didn't pick himself up and go as the prophet said he should. He should have defended the Jewish people with faith and trust in Hashem. He didn't do that. He somehow became immobile, as if he had no legs. As if you have no legs, you'll have no legs. That's the first dimension or element of punishment. Then Rabag says, the Siper in When the Torah, when the Tanakh, when the prophets tell us about Osa's lack of reliance on Hashem, but rather instead seeking out medical help and relying on doctors alone, we're being told that Hashem He didn't seek out Hashem. Achbotach. He placed his reliance and his trust, his betochen, in doctors. It seems pretty clear to me, says Rabag. Had he sought out Hashem, he might have been healed. But tragically, he didn't. Now in the Steinzeltz edition, they suggest that this illness, in fact, is gout. Now, gout is an incurable disease, and it's caused by a rise in acidity in the blood, which results in acid crystals accumulating in various joints of the body, particularly the toes, and sometimes it even goes up into the kidneys. That's pretty consistent with the words of the scripture here. In the past, he says, gout was called the disease of the kings or rich man's disease, as it is probably caused by overeating an unhealthy diet and the subsequent obesity, a characteristic of people from pampered groups of the population. You know, of course, we are probably the first humans in history who have more people dying from eating too much than not having enough to eat. I'm just saying. (laughs) 
At any rate, this is the story of Asa. And the story of Asa, from Rabbeinu Bahai's perspective, sheds very, very clear light on the dangers of inclusivity when it comes to trust. For Asa, it was his very undoing. Because shortly after this illness, that was the end of Asa's life. Rabbeinu Bechaya says further, Va'omar HaKosuf, and the verse, the Pasuk says, and here he draws on the 17th chapter of Jeremiah, Yirmiyahu, utilizing a language of benison, he says, Baruch HaGever Asher Yivtach Bahashem. He blesses the person of strength, strength of character. A gever is a person who has a sense of heroism, staying power, a person who overcomes the inner challenges that he or she faces. That's called a gever. So Baruch HaGever, blessed is the person. You and I can all be a gever. You and I can all, so to speak, rise to the occasion, find the strength within us not to be daunted by the fears and the anxieties that can sometimes cloud our life. And instead, to place our trust in Hashem. Okay, so the Pat Lechem says, that's nice. Blessed is the person who places his trust in Hashem. Doesn't say you can't trust anybody else. Ah. V'hoyo Hashem miftachoi. Yirmiyo Hanavi finishes with the words, and God will be his trust. God will be his trust, says Pas Lechem. Talmud Loimar. From this I can see, from the opening part of the verse, I might hear or understand, that even if he were to include in his big tent trust someone or something else, that's all right. Talmud Loimar, Yirmiyahu then repeats himself, it seems, but actually emphasizes something different. Not only is it important for us to place our trust in Hashem, not only should we rely in Hashem and find a sense of inner tranquility because we know that God is going to help us, but furthermore, V'hoya Hashem miftachai, asher hu miftachai, hu yizbarech, he alone, v'loy acher. And so, by virtue of this narrative, the story of an ailing ancient king named Asa, the king of Judea, the great-grandson of King Solomon, which is now also contrasted by the specific verbiage, the precise language of benison utilized by Yirmiyahu from both the narrative and the words of the prophet, it becomes crystal clear that trust requires exclusivity. Which kind of brings us to the question, so are we not supposed to go to a doctor? I mean, we're talking about partners in healing. Doesn't God have partners? So the simple answer is, as we've learned, you can do, in fact, you should do what is necessary from natural means you shouldn't rely on it. Simple example. 
you wanted to get the services of a very highly regarded doctor, world-renowned specialist, and you were prevented. Clearly the hand of Hashem. And now you're anxious. If I would have this famous surgeon, top cardiologist, world-renowned oncologist on my side, then I'd be relaxed. Then I, doctor, I trust you. Doctor says, don't you worry, I got you covered. I've done this a thousand times. You place your trust in the doctor. How do we know you're placing your trust in the doctor? Because all of a sudden the doctor can't perform the surgery. Who's coming instead? His partner? I don't know him. I don't trust him. It's the hand of Hashem. The person who was supposed to perform the surgery had a heart attack yesterday. He's not can do the surgery. Obviously, it has to be somebody else. So the person who had been talking in Hashem trusts in Hashem that it's going to go well because, because Hashem is going to make it well. But another person says, uh-oh. I'm so worried. I'm so anxious. What happened? That, that big doctor can't do it. And now I'm in the hands of a shlomazel. Now I'm in the hands of a second-rate, non-famous, non-world-renowned medicine, practitioner of medicine. How do we know he's going to be okay? What are you talking about? You placed your trust in a mortal instead of in Hashem? You think a mortal can't make a mistake? So you'll ask me, so why should we seek out a bigger doctor? Why do we look for the biggest doctors? Because that's part of doing what we can from a natural perspective. The Maggid of Mizrich once said that Hashem heals people by sending Malachim. Malach Rifol, the angel of healing. And then he asked himself, if it's an angel who's doing everything, why look for a bigger doctor? And he said that's because a bigger doctor gets a bigger Malach. Or if you will, it's a greater camouflage for Hashem's miracles to work through. So if a person who doesn't really know what they're doing manages to pull off a stunning success, you say, like, how did that happen? It's a miracle. But when the seasoned, experienced medical practitioner does what he's done or she's done so many times, he says, it's not a miracle. That's what's expected. Wrong. They were both miracles. But in the second, you allowed for God to work His miracles in a way that seems non-miraculous. That's actually our job. Now I have to tell you that there is an element of miracles that sometimes transcends nature altogether. You have to be a very righteous person to be able to earn that kind of divine generosity and largesse. And sometimes because of one's intense holiness and the circumstances that were once different, like prophets that walked the face of the earth and could speak to us in God's name. There were times when perhaps spiritual efforts were sufficient. You can find this in the commentary of Nachmanides. Ramban, in Parshat Bechukotai, which is in the 27th chapter of Leviticus, in his commentary on verse 8. The opening of Parshat Bechukotai speaks about God's blessings to us. Ranban says that there's an element of blessing that comes to Israel, the nation, when we do Hashem's will, which is overtly miraculous. 
it breaks all statistics. It's not predictable, so to speak. When it comes to private individuals, so he says, here, Hashem would camouflage that in a much greater sense. The real truth is, he says, even though they are all God's miracles. They're concealed miracles. The whole Torah is full of them. Even one individual serves Hashem. When a person will be a chosid, a pious individual, he observes God's mitzvahs. Hashem saves him from illness. And there are incredible stories like that. Very righteous people who devoted themselves to serving Hashem and in turn saw miraculous things happen in their own life. And then Ramban says that even though there are nisim nistorim that could come to private individuals, he says when it comes to a nation, it doesn't come in a private or quiet way. There it's open, over it. Because it's on the world stage. You think the Six Day War was natural? <laughs> the kind of war that hasn't been fought before or after in modern times. The capture of Jerusalem makes sense. Says no military expert ever. The greatest casualties in Givata Techmosh had yielded virtually nothing. And shockingly, Motogoro was able to make it through the Damascus Gate off the charts. The hand of Hashem. In an obvious, overt, an obvious overt way. And this is the case, he says, when the land together comes home to Hashem. Hashem promises them peace and satiation and salvation in a manner that is Yevoda Lachol Hashem The whole world can see it. Nachmanides goes on to say like this. When the Jewish people serve Hashem together as a nation, nature and statistics has got nothing on us. Not in our corporeal reality or welfare, not in our national security. Hashem shields us, looks out for us. As a nation, we wouldn't be stricken by illness. As a nation, we wouldn't have to seek out medical assistance or intervention. Because God promises, I am Hashem, your healer. And then Ramban says this. So it was. Different people in a different time. This is what the righteous people were able to do in a time of prophecy. A time of prophecy means a time in which God chooses to reveal himself in our world. We are living in a time of exile, a time of Hester Panim, a time of profound concealment. In our world, God chooses not to reveal his miracles, and it always has to be camouflaged with the guise of nature. But there was a time when Hashem's prophets walked the streets. There was a time when miracles could be obviously seen and recognized. And in this time, for tzaddikim, for worldly righteous individuals who had maximized their spiritual potential in the service of Hashem, then 
They needed simply to go to a prophet. If they had made a, so to speak, a bubu, a sin, some kind of imperfection. It doesn't mean a sin necessarily of commission. It could be a sin of omission. They weren't serving Hashem, marshalling every ounce of wherewithal and ability. They didn't serve Hashem as well as they could have. There's a, a lack of perfect spiritual health and functionality, which led to some kind of physical breakdown. So the tzaddikim, in the time of the prophets, la yidrashu, pardon me, la darash, la yidrashu they wouldn't seek out a medical practitioner. Rak benevim, only prophets. And we see this, says Ramban from Oso, ki bechol yov, Hashem, in his illness, he did not seek out Hashem. That was his problem. Also sought out, sought out the, the doctors. No, this is not the way Rabbeinu Bechaya frames it. He doesn't say also sought out the doctors. He said also ignored Hashem. The way Ramban speaks of it, also forgot about Hashem altogether. He should have gone only to God, not look for a partner in healing. I don't think it's a contradiction, though. What Ramban is saying, of course, is true. It's Torah, and it's true. And the greatest of tzaddikim, in a different time, and in a different place, were able to seek out only Hashem. And imagine this. If in a time when Asa was righteous, it could have been a tzaddik, because of a lack of betochen, not only he didn't seek out not, not only didn't partner, so to speak, trust in Hashem and seek the help of a doctor, he could have sought Hashem entirely. And because of a lack of betochen, he ends up going down the garden path of shared trust, which becomes no trust. And he didn't seek out Hashem's help at all. He went to the doctors. It didn't help him, by the way. He never recovered, never walked again. He says, what do doctors do? Doctors can advise you about changing your diet. Doctors can prescribe herbs. The doctors have pharmacology and they can use a whole cocktail of different drugs to inhibit parts of the body and make it function in a certain way or remove certain functionality that enables us to overcome weakness or illness. But ultimately, it is Hashem through whom healing comes. So, whether Osa should have gone to doctors altogether is a question. Ramban would tell you Osa didn't have to go to doctors at all. However, in today's day and age, there is no doubt that from a Torah perspective, we are required to seek out medical help. We need to find medical intervention. In fact, that's a clear halacha in the Shulchan Aruch, and I'll share it with you. The Shulchan Aruch, in the section of Yoridea, Chapter 336 reads as follows. Nitna ha-Torah reshut lerapos. The Torah gives permission to the doctor to heal. Umitzvahi. It's a mitzvah. It's a sacred duty for the doctor to heal. Going to a doctor is included in what we call a danger between life and death. And when you're in that kind of danger zone, you're required 
to violate the Shabbat and the rest of the Torah in order to save your life. And if a person avoids receiving medical help, the person is guilty of bloodletting, his own bloodletting. And even if he has a doctor in the house, it doesn't mean he shouldn't seek out a better expert. Not because the better expert necessarily heals him. Because the Gemara says, You have to have a merit. You have to have a zuchut. You have to have a blessing. And Hashem chooses that the blessings should come through a certain agent, a certain doctor, a certain professional. One of the primary commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch, the Tur of the Taz, he says, I don't understand. The language of the Code of Jewish Law reads extremely oddly. He says, what do you mean? Nitna HaTorah Rishut. The Shulchan Aruch says, the Torah gave permission. And then he says, U Mitzvahi. And it's a mitzvah. Rishut in Hebrew means it's an elective. You have permission to do so. Mitzvah means it's obligatory. The Taz sees this somewhat of a contradiction between saying it's permissible and in fact mandatory. <laughs> Make up your mind. Is it mandatory or permissible? Why does he first call it permissible and then later call it mandated? So the Taz sets off and a very, very detailed explanation. And he says, the truth remains that refuah, true refuah, is always from Hashem, not from doctors. Hashem says in his Torah, Machatzti Vanierper, I am the one who brought illness, I am the one who heal you. The problem is, most of us don't merit. God's direct intervention. And therefore, we have to do what is necessary by virtue of nature. God agrees. He gave the healing through the nature of healing. And that's Hashem's permission. And the Taz has a whole stunning analysis of Gemara Meseches Brachas and the seemingly different verbiage that's invoked and the argument that unfolds in its pages. And he says, in the cascade of words that is apparent, that we must believe that true healing comes from God, but at the same time, we're required. And in fact, it's mandatory for us to seek out the necessary medical intervention and help. Incidentally, there's a, it's pretty well known that the Rebbe in 1977, when he suffered a massive heart attack, refused to be taken to the hospital and preferred to be treated in his room. But there's an article that was just published about Maizadeh Alava Shalom's cousin, the world-famous cardiologist, Dr. Bernard Laun, a Nobel laureate, who, inventor of the defibrillator, you can go to Chabad.org, a fascinating article, it's just literally published days ago, in which they detail the acquiescence of the doctors, in fact, Dr. Lowndes said that the Rebbe saves his life by not going to the hospital. That doesn't mean you or I shouldn't go to a hospital, God forbid, if we need to. It means the Rebbe understood his circumstances, and the Rebbetson knew that if the Rebbe said, then so it must be. And medically speaking, that was actually the right thing to do. So we have to do what's medically right. That's what we're obligated to do.
I want to conclude with a beautiful letter from the Rebbe, which kind of drives home this point, and I think enables us to understand how we view healing and the partnership that exists between God and the doctor. We don't know who this letter is written to. It's not publicized. It seems to me that it's either somebody in Europe or in the land of Israel. And the Rebbe is addressing a chassid whose wife was very, very concerned about going to the hospital. The doctor said she must go to the hospital to undergo a series of tests. And she was terrified of the hospital. For a variety of reasons. The Rebbe says, all of which have no foundation. I have to tell you, this is the summer of 1950. This is before the Rebbe was formally acknowledged as Rebbe, at least officially. And the Rebbe writes, You must explain to her. Find the right words. I can't tell you what to say. Find the right words. The right words should be in accordance with her mood. Lefi matzav rucha. You have to size up a person and know what they can and can't hear. And the Rebbe writes in Yiddish. I think he writes in Yiddish because this was a heartfelt way of conveying. He was giving this person the tools to be able to convey the message. I'm going to read it to you and translate. That Eibishter had bashaf and develt. God created the world. When er feared the welt, God runs the world. Sayin chazi kader atachten vumir gefinen zich in what they call the Western Hemisphere, from a Torah perspective, the lower half of the globe. On sayin chazi kader chazi kader elyon and in the upper half of the globe, known in secular terminology as the Eastern Hemisphere. And I. Don't know where it is because there's a, a few words that were omitted. So I'm guessing Europe or Israel. Vuhu Omar Vayehi. God spoke the world into existence. Hu Tziva, he instructed Vayamid, and the world exists. As Alts was er tutzich in der Welt, everything that happens in the world, tutzich nit on the Mebishten. Nothing happens without God. This is exactly what we've been learning about in the previous episodes. How God is the sole source of everything. How God is the driving force of everything. Whatever God wants. It's by His will. God wills it. That we should make a euphemism. A, a mechanism, an envelope, a convention. We have to create some kind of vehicle through which Hashem's beneficence should come to us. Thus haste. As in Yonim Zolan Zich Opton things have to happen in the system of nature. Bishasaid, when a member of Am Yisrael, man or the Freud, man or woman, feels the is not good. They don't feel good. Something's wrong. But after all, a doctor, you got to call a doctor. Is this not the pshat as their doctor veton the ervetzich es es pravlen that the doctor will do 
as he or she pleases. No, there in Alter Fun, the real content, the meaning of this is, as Hashem is Barachat, that God chose the doctor that he should be his Shliach. That Hashem should do his mission through him. That's what it is. When you have trust in Hashem, you have trust in the Mebishtim, on case without doubts, because if you have doubts, that's not called betochen. What's the first thing to know? What we learned in the previous, the first principle, that Hashem cares about us and that Hashem is in control. As their fear developed, God's running the world. Then we merit when we have betochen, and by virtue of the betochen we have, then we merit to see it with our own eyes. Every step of the way. As God holds us each, so to speak, by the hand. Hashem takes us in the direction that is best for us. This is true, saying Gashmius and saying Ruchnius, both materially and spiritually. Bemela, the Rebbe says, Ebzi gain in hospital. If she'll go to the hospital, Later, he rose from the doctor as per the instructions of the doctor. Of the doctor, bleibt sie noch als unter dem Eberstein so schuss. That's not an act of sedition. That's not an act of unfaithfulness. If she's listening to a doctor, if I don't want to make the doctor a partner, I would got to heal me. No, it doesn't work like that, my friends. Not in today's day and age, and certainly not for regular people. We are in the time of concealment, where everything goes through nature. So when you're listening to the doctor and doing what the doctor says, you're not leaving the jurisdiction of God. On the contrary, you're doing what Hashem told you to do. When the Rebishter vets hitten and then God will watch over her and see. As this will gain this is best for her in the way that's best for her. And the Rebbe says this will be true for her physical, material health as well as for her spiritual slash emotional health. There's only a proviso, one caveat. Sie darf nur sein stark in der Emune und Betochen. She's got to be very strong. Strong in her faith and strong in her trust. As es wird sicher mekuyim werden, that certainly things will happen. And the Rebbe goes on to list the brachas that this woman received from the Rebbe's predecessor, from the Friedrich Rebbe. And that the Rebbe continues to bless her from on high. And that she will have her a four shlema. And that you and her will soon be able to send me good news. And the Rebbe adds, I'm, I'm certain you're giving a little tzedakah before you, she lights Shabbat candles, supporting the poor of Israel and reciting Tehillim appropriately, including the Rebbe's capital. So partners in healing, my friends? Yes and no. God has no partners. If you trust in the doctor, you've crossed the line. 
If you trust in medicine, you're making a big mistake. We enlist the help of doctors. We are told to follow the advice and the instruction of medical practitioners. We have to do what is required in a reasonable, normative, and accepted practice. Our trust, our security, our surety, our ability to remain calm, cool, and collected, and not be overwhelmed or riddled with anxiety, that comes not from a partnership. That comes from our trust in Hashem Yisbarach, in Hashem Yisbarach alone. A partner in healing? No problem. A partner in trust? Big problem. And that, my friends, is the beginning of the third principle that is necessary for us to develop our betochen in the fullest sense to be continued. Thanks so much for joining. Have a beautiful day. If you enjoyed this and found it uplifting, please be so kind as to hit like, share, and be sure to subscribe youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. I hope to hear good news and share good news. And hopefully, all of us doing the partnership that Hashem has given us to do one more mitzvah, to accelerate the universal process of redemption, will bring us home. Bimheira will be amenu, speedily, and in our days, amen. Thank you so much for joining.